Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Historicism, an essay by C.S. Lewis, part three. But the historicist is in a different position. When he says important facts survive, he must mean by the important, if he is saying anything to the purpose, that which reveals the inner meaning of history. The important parts of the past must, for a Hegelian historicist, be those in which absolute spirit progressively manifests itself. For a Christian historicist, those which reveal the purposes of God. In this claim, I see two difficulties. The first is logical. If history is what the historicist says, the self-manifestation of spirit, the story written by the finger of God, the revelation which includes all other revelations, then surely he must go to history itself to teach him what is important. How does he know beforehand what sort of events are, in a higher degree than others, self-manifestations of spirit? And if he does not know that, how does he get his assurance that it is events of that type which manage, what a convenience, to get recorded? The second difficulty is obvious if we think for a moment of the process whereby a fact about the past reaches, or fails to reach, posterity. Prehistoric pottery survives because earthenware is easy to break and hard to pulverize. Prehistoric poetry has perished because words, before writing, are winged. Is it reasonable to conclude either that there was no poetry, or that it was, by the historicist's standard, less important than the pottery? Is there a discovered law by which important manuscripts survive and unimportant perish? Do you ever turn out an old drawer, say at the breakup of your father's house, without wondering at the survival of trivial documents and the disappearance of those which everyone would have thought worth preservation? And I think the real historian will allow that the actual detritus of the past, on which he works, is very much more like an old drawer than like an intelligent epitome of some longer work. Most that survives or perishes, survives or perishes by chance. That is, as a result of causes which have nothing to do either with the historian's or the historicist's interests. Doubtless, it would be possible for God so to ordain these chances that what survives is always just what the historicist needs, but I see no evidence that he has done so. I remember no promise that he would. The literary sources, as the historian calls them, no doubt record what their writers for some reason thought important. But this is of little use unless their standards of importance were the same as God's. This seems unlikely. Their standards do not agree with one another, nor with ours. They often tell us what we do not greatly want to know, and omit what we think essential. It is often easy to see why. Their standard of importance can be explained by their historical situation. So, no doubt, can ours. Standards of historical importance are themselves embedded in history. But then, by what standard can we judge whether the important, in some high-flying Hegelian sense, has survived? Have we, 
apart from our Christian faith, any assurance that the historical events which we regard as momentous coincide with those which would be found momentous if God showed us the whole text and deigned to comment? Why should Genghis Khan be more important than the patience or despair of someone among his victims? Might not those whom we regard as significant figures, great scholars, soldiers, and statesmen, turn out to have their chief importance as giving occasion to states of soul in individuals whom we never heard of? I do not, of course, mean that those whom we call the great are not themselves immortal souls for whom Christ died, but that in the plot of history as a whole, they might be minor characters. It would not be strange if we, who have not sat through the whole play, and who have heard only tiny fragments of the scenes already played, sometimes mistook a mere super in a fine dress for one of the protagonists. On such a small and chance selection from the total past as we have, it seems to me a waste of time to play the historicist. The philosophy of history is a discipline for which we mortal men lack the necessary data. Nor is the attempt always a mere waste of time. It may be positively mischievous. It encourages a Mussolini to say that, quote, history took him by the throat, when what really took him by the throat was desire. Drivel about superior races or imminent dialectic may be used to strengthen the hand and ease the conscience of cruelty and greed. And what quack or traitor will not now woo adherence or intimidate resistance with the assurance that his scheme is inevitable, bound to come, and in the direction which the world is already taking? When I have tried to explain myself on this subject in conversation, I have sometimes been met by the rejoinder, Because historians do not know all, will you forbid them to try to understand what they do know? But this seems to me to miss the whole point. I have already explained in what sense historians should attempt to understand the past. They may infer unknown events from known. They may reconstruct. They may even, if they insist, predict. They may, in fact, tell me almost anything they like about history except its meta-historical meaning. And the reason is surely very plain. There are inquiries in which scanty evidence is worth using. We may not be able to get certainty, but we can get probability, and half a loaf is better than no bread. But there are other inquiries in which scanty evidence has the same value as no evidence at all. In a funny anecdote, to have heard all except the last six words in which the point lies leaves you, as a judge of its comic merits, in the same position as the man who has heard none of it. The historian seems to me to be engaged on an inquiry of the first type, the historicist on one of the second. But let us take a closer analogy. Suppose a lost Greek play of which fragments totaling six lines survive. They have survived, of course, in grammarians who quoted them to illustrate rare inflections. That is, they survived because someone thought them important for some reason, not because they were important in the play as a play. If any one of them had dramatic importance, that is simply a lucky accident, and we know nothing about it. I do not condemn the classical scholar to produce nothing more than a bare text of the fragments any more than I condemn the historian to be a mere analyst. 
Let the scholar amend their corruptions and draw from them any conclusions he can about the history of Greek language, meter, or religion. But let him not start talking to us about the significance of the play as a play. For that purpose, the evidence before him has a value indistinguishable from zero. The example of a defective text might be used in another way. Let us assume a mutilated manuscript in which only a minority of passages are legible. The parts we can still read might be tolerable evidence for those features which are likely to be constant and evenly distributed over the whole. For example, spelling or handwriting. On such evidence, a paleographer might, without excessive boldness, hazard a guess about the character and nationality of the scribe. A literary critic would have much less chance of guessing correctly at the purport of the whole text. That is because the paleographer deals with what is cyclic or recurrent, and the literary critic with something unique, and uniquely developing throughout. It is possible, though not likely, that all the torn or stained or missing leaves were written by a different scribe, and if they were not, it is very unlikely that he altered his graphic habits in all the passages we cannot check. But there is nothing in the world to prevent the legible line at the bottom of a page. Erimian was the noblest of the brothers ten, having been followed on the next and now missing page by something like, As men believed, so false are the beliefs of men. This provides the answer to a question which may be asked. Does my canon that historical premises should yield only historical conclusions entail the corollary that scientific premises should yield only scientific conclusions? If we call the speculations of Whitehead, or Jeans, or Eddington, scientism, as distinct from science, do I condemn the scientist as much as the historicist? I am inclined, so far as I can see my way at present, to answer no. The scientist and the historian seem to me like the paleographer and the literary critic in my parable. The scientists study those elements in reality which repeat themselves. The historian studies the unique. Both have a defective manuscript, but its defects are by no means equally damaging to both. One specimen of gravitation, or one specimen of handwriting, for all we can see to the contrary, is as good as another. But one historical event, or one line of a poem, is different from another, and different in its actual context from what it would be in any other context. And out of all these differences, the unique character of the whole is built up. That is why, in my opinion, the scientist who becomes a scientist is in a stronger position than the historian who becomes a historicist. It may not be very wise to conclude from what we know of the physical universe that God is a mathematician. It seems to me, however, much wiser than to conclude anything about his judgments from mere history. Caveas disputare de occultus dei judiciis. Beware of discussing God's hidden judgments, says the author of the imitation. He even advises us what antidotes to use, quando heic sugeret inimicus. 
when this enemy suggests. It will, I hope, be understood that I am not denying all access whatever to the revelation of God in history. On certain great events, those embodied in the creeds, we have what I believe to be divine comment which makes plain so much of their significance as we need and can bear to know. On other events, most of which are in any case unknown to us, we have no such comment. And it is also important to remember that we all have a certain limited but direct access to history in sense one. We are allowed, indeed compelled, to read it sentence by sentence. And every sentence is labeled now. I am not, of course, referring to what is commonly called contemporary history, the content of the newspapers. That is possibly the most phantasmal of all histories, a story written not by the hand of God, but by foreign offices, demagogues, and reporters. I mean the real, or primary history, which meets each of us moment by moment in his own experience. It is very limited, but it is the pure, unedited, unexpurgated text straight from the author's hand. We believe that those who seek will find comment sufficient whereby to understand it in such degree as they need, and that therefore God is every moment revealed in history, that is, in what MacDonald called the holy present. Where, except in the present, can the eternal be met? If I attack historicism, it is not because I intend any disrespect to primary history, the real revelation springing direct from God in every experience. It is rather because I respect this real original history too much to see with unconcern the honors due to it, lavished on those fragments, copies of fragments, copies of copies of fragments, or floating reminiscences of copies of copies, which are, unhappily, confounded with it under the general name of history. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>